This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of Thursday, September 24th, 2020. This week, the unions and the studios sign a COVID shooting agreement, even though other productions have already been shooting for months. We've also <laughs> got Hulu uh, doing an amazing ad using a hot little technology fresh off the internet called Deepfakes. Super cool. In tech news, if you haven't read about it by now, you'll be reading about it sometime today. Canon has come out with a camera, the C70, which is dynamite on a stick and i'm very excited to be talking about it with everybody in tech news i think it is the right move from canon uh all that followed up with a, a final segment which we're calling lessons for the filmmaker from the abuse of power in the senate that's not a great tagline what were some of the other <laughs> taglines we had for this the one right we had a couple line. i mean it's, uh. it's the correct tagline what what filmmakers can learn from the end of a dem democratic institution <laughs> uh, we have a fun we have a you have dynamite on a stick but i think we want to set off a firecracker at the end yeah all that this week on the no film school podcast as always i'm tech writer charles hayne i'm here with editor-in-chief george edelman hello and writer michelle de la tour hi everyone good to hear you and see you again all right. Well, let's let's get to our first story. So despite the fact that you've been reading on the No Film School site and various other places that productions have restarted, I mean, we had productions in July. It's September now. We have lots of productions. I go to a stage uh, pretty regularly, uh, Steiner Studios here in New York, and the parking lot's full. Like it is, like the world has restarted, at least in New York. I know California is slow because New York is ahead of, you know, it's that old thing of uh, everything always starts in New York and then makes it to the Midwest a couple of years later. Um, production has restarted in New York before everywhere else. And uh, the studios and the unions have finally come to agreement on how that's all going to work. Now, a lot of people pointed out, they were like, well, wait a minute, this agreement's now, but productions have been starting a couple months ago. So almost every one of those productions that already restarted had their own individual COVID agreement between the producers and the crew, often negotiated with the local unions and with local union approval. This document isn't the first document of its kind. This document is, we've now come to an agreement that this will be the ongoing, we're not going to have to renegotiate this for every production. You're a studio, you're doing 10 movies, we're just going to keep using this one over and over. So it's not that those people on union shows back in July weren't protected. They were. There were agreements being negotiated. And the uh, unions came together and released back in May the Safe Way Forward with a whole set of plans for what this would all look like. Of course, the safe way forward was negotiated by the unions together, but it didn't involve the studios. So it was ambitious might be one way of putting it. It was a lot of proposals, some of which got implemented by July, some of which haven't been. So what we're actually looking at right now is probably a much more realistic look at what production is going to look like for the next year. And, you know, there's less testing in it than... A lot of productions were doing, you know, I've been reading reports of people who are like, I was on a set where I was tested every day. So a lot of the bigger productions were doing daily testing for everybody on set, whereas the minimum requirements in this union contract are performers three times a week. And that was like, I mean, that was one of the more frequent testing, you know, office personnel once a week, offsite personnel every two weeks. So, you know, the, the testing is ramped down. I think part of the reason it's ramped down is people have actually realized just how complicated it is to manage testing hundreds of people every day. Um, it's it's not an easy thing to do. And I think everybody sort of came to an agreement that a 72-hour window for testing was probably sufficient. Um, you know, I know in New York, we're dealing with a lot of student films now, and, and sort of the going thing with SAG is if people can get tested Friday morning and get results Friday afternoon, they should be good to shoot all Saturday and Sunday under those results and feel like they're reasonably safe and taking good care of each other. The biggest thing that come out of these uh, negotiations, and it's one that unsurprisingly people were fighting over, and insider reports say it was one of the last sticking points, is there is 10 days of paid sick leave, 
And if you are put in quarantine, like you're on location and you're put in quarantine, you're paid for your uh, quarantine and you get your job back. So like, let's say you are on a production. Sick leave is a complicated thing in the film industry. You often don't get it. I mean, I remember when I was a freelancer, I woke up with food poisoning once and I had to replace myself for that day. And so obviously the person who replaced me got paid, but I didn't get paid. I mean, that's reality in filmmaking. Um, But this is saying, nope, in the world of COVID, you're getting sick leave. And if we have a positive COVID test for you and like we're all on location together, so you have to quarantine, you're getting paid for quarantine and you're getting your job back at the end. This is a huge win for the unions. This is also the only sane, considerate thing to do. You're, you're bringing people to set to work in the middle of a pandemic. If they get infected, we can reasonably assume they got it on set. You should give them sick leave for that two-week period that they're in quarantine dealing with the infection. So I'm really glad it was gotten. I think it shows a lot of solidarity. Um, and for the most part, I mean, those were my sort of first reactions from finally seeing this release hit the streets. It's nice that they caught up. It's nice that there are some rules and regulations filtering down and that, you know, people who've been, like you said, there've been people in production already, but I think it makes sense to, you know, uh, once you can formalize it and the unions can have some rules and there can be production guidelines, those can kind of apply going forward and and help get more people back to work safely. And I think we can all agree it's a good thing. Um, My concern has always been that when and where and how people will cut corners just to get stuff done and that'll hurt people who are more vulnerable. Um, And while it's great, and I'm not saying in any way that it's not great to have sick leave, you know, there's going to be plenty of non-union people who don't get that um, and non-union productions and producers who are, and I know I've been those producers, like they're going to have to go that route. So there's lots of uh, battles to fight to try and get everybody and every production situation that exists to be as safe as possible. But um, yeah, it's good. It's a good step. It's a it's an important move forward. And yeah, like you said, New York is back more so than we are here in the West Coast. But part of that is because the brunt, like you guys got hit by a by a big wave early and responded and adjusted quickly. And L.A. has had and California and other places have had waves that hit later and uh, different size and have responded differently. And, you know, it's sort of like on a national scale, we're still wondering why we're struggling with this when there are so many nations that have moved past it. But um, that's another conversation. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad. I, I think this is a win all around, right? I think so. I feel like I have two follow-up questions. One is, does this agreement primarily affect folks on set as opposed to editors or anyone else working offset, or does it apply across the board? So if you're just in a project and get sick and you might have gotten it from work and work may have been in media, does it cover sick pay or is it just the is it just is it all unions and related to on-set production-based stuff? So this is primarily related to production. I see DGA, SAG-AFTRA, Yahtzee, and the Teamsters in the basic crafts with AMPTP. I don't see uh, the Editor's Guild in the lists. Honestly, look, I know that some small post houses are going back to in-person, but post is so... Post has pivoted so hard to remote. You know, they do talk about production office staff. Production office staff are specifically mentioned that they're given a zone. And we are increasingly in a world where, you know, uh, I mean, in the production office itself, you don't really see an edit station, but it's not uncommon for like the edit station to start working around the same time as the production. So I imagine there's going to be some coverage for that. But I also think that, you know, if, if you're a production trying to save any money you can, which all of them are right now, because they're all, you know, everybody's budget went up 20 to 30% because of COVID. I think the, the smartest, easiest thing you can do is just keep uh, your post team remote, um, which is interesting, actually, because, you know, I've also been part of a lot of conversations lately about, like, should we be getting paid better for remote work because we're working at home using our own electricity and using our own computers? And shouldn't we be getting a yeah. hit fee? And I think... There's a reasonable argument to be made for all that. I also think that 
on the flip side, you don't have to commute. You can cook your own lunch. Uh, your lunch is probably healthier because it's not takeout. The ingredients are cheaper from the grocery. So there's pluses and minuses there that are going to make it more complicated to negotiate for that kit fee. Um, although I have been hearing some people from productions who are like, they, who are saying, oh, I was up front with production that I, my personal laptop is like a MacBook Air. If you want me to cut this from home, you have to ship me a machine. And they've been doing it. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there is some of that going on in post. Yeah. The other piece to this is the cost. You just said that productions went up 20 to 30%. We've had this conversation before around what that means for indie and smaller budget productions that just won't be able to support fronting tests three times a week for however long that they're filming. Um, so I'm interested to see how this plays out. Unless, is it covered by some, I feel like if you have symptoms, it's probably covered, but if you're just testing because you want to film, it probably isn't covered by insurance. Um, well, I mean, it, a lot of it depends upon where you are. Like the city of New York right yeah. now has free same day testing, but there's only oh. like one or two testing facilities per borough. And so it's not like, a con it's not a convenient thing. You know, there's hundreds of test sites in New York city, but if you want the free same day tests, you know, I'm, I'm going tomorrow to get a free same day test and I had to make an appointment two days ago and it's like half an hour for me, even though it's in my borough. So it's, you know, I think it's more of a indie filmmakers are always going to figure out how to make movies. You're going to do it with fewer people on set. You're going to do it with uh, more creativity. And, you know, if I'm an indie filmmaker in New York, I'm just going to play my shoots and say, all right, guys, everybody, we're going to wake up together first thing Tuesday morning at 4 a.m. We're going to log into the site that we're going to get our, our Thursday testing appointments because they open two days in advance. We'll all get tested Thursday. We'll shoot Friday, Saturday, Sunday under the cover of those tests. So that'll hold for the SAG rules. And, and we'll just do it like that. So I think, you know, indie filmmakers are always going to find a way. Studio filmmakers are not ever going to be as willing to be that flexible, right? I mean, you're not going to ask Tom Cruise to wake up at four in the morning to create a MyChart login to go get a test. You know, like, you, you, uh, when you have the money, you spend it. You can't do, like, when you are that type of production, you can't be cheap. But I think there are still safe ways for small productions to safely do what they do with small crews. And, you know, the big thing for me, which is fascinating, is, like, just how important monitoring is right now. Like I was just on sort of an equipment call with a bunch of people. And like the big thing we're hearing from people who are going out and shooting is like, you know, uh, everybody wants to have their own monitor in their pocket. Everybody wants to, you know, um, there's a device called the surf pro that I reviewed um, a couple years ago. And then I just reviewed over the summer. Hollyland has the Mars 400 S and it turns your phone into a monitor. So all of a sudden you, you mount it to the camera and four different people can all have their phones up and can stand 15 feet from each other looking at their phone to watch the image instead of crowding around Video Village, which is like one of those things that we didn't really think about when this whole thing broke out. But it's like, oh, yeah, like that's where most of the contact is on set is people crowding around the monitor. So now if we're going to spread them out, we all have to. I imagine Hollyland is selling a lot of those, actually. I should go check my review and see if its traffic was good because um it, you know, we're entering that zone, I think. All right. Our next subject is a COVID-related production, which is, so we don't talk about Hulu much on here because Hulu's weird, but, you know, it's a good place to watch all 30 Rock episodes. But Hulu, <laughs> a thing we forget about it Hulu has more is that they have that. live. It Palm has Springs. More than that. Oh, yeah, Palm Springs. Uh, it also has a thing called live sports. So if you enjoy watching sports, you're aware that it, it was all shut down for the coronavirus, and now we're getting some of it back. And the way we're getting it back is they're locking all the sports ball players together in a compound in Florida, and they're not allowed to leave, and they're tested all the time so that they can play sports ball against each other, and, and we can watch it on the television. And that's how they're doing it. But if you're Hulu, you also have to tell the audience, hey, live sports ball is back. It's coming. You can watch it. So Hulu wanted to do a commercial and they could have done a depressing thing where like they gave every, you know, uh, sports ball celebrity like an iPhone and they self shot in, like their depressing Orlando hotel room compound place. Hey, it's coming back on their iPhone. But Hulu wanted to make it slick. So they hired body doubles for these celebrities. They shot the entire commercial with body doubles. It's a very nice looking commercial. It's something any commercial director would be proud to have them on the reel. And, you know, the gag of the commercials, everybody's doing these, like, 
pandemic activities like one guy's baking a sourdough bread the other person's learning to paint one's learning to play the ukulele and then they discover sports is back and they throw out the bread and they like go get to play their sports but the celebrities never left or like wherever their florida compound is they shot over zoom video of the celebrities saying the tagline and a whole bunch of angles on the celebrity's face probably took less than an hour for each celebrity and then they used deep fake technology so they didn't use like full fancy CGI. It wasn't like Benjamin Button. It was literally the same deep fake technology, the same like AI machine learning engine that they used to recast Terminator 2 with Sylvester Stallone, which we had an article about on the website. Um, we did a long time ago. The more towards the beginning of the deep fake. Now there's so much good deep fake stuff out there. You can- yeah you can find but yeah that was towards the earlier end of when it was happening yeah that was like the beginning of the realization of what deepfakes could be and they used deepfakes and zoom video of celebrities to make this ad and once you know you're like oh okay i can see it i guarantee you 95 percent of the people who watch it just saw an ad and never noticed that it's a little weird in the face and it's an effective ad and it totally works and honestly i mean i think there's a huge lesson here for filmmakers i think that you know, like, for instance, Goodwill Hunting, famously, they wrote the Robin Williams role because they were like, oh, we need a famous celebrity to help us with distribution that we'll only need a couple days with. And, like, I've been on so many indie features where a famous person shows up for a day because, you know, Bottle Rocket having James Caan or whatever indie movie you're working on, having somebody with a bigger name can help you with distribution. Now, instead of having to have that person with the bigger name actually show up, you could shoot with a body double, pay for the rights. Cause I guarantee you, if you just are like, if you just try and pretend Nicolas Cage has a cameo in your movie, Nicolas Cage's people will sue you. But <laughs> you could theoretically. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're opening up a can of worms with people where you're going to be like, hey, I mean, why don't I shoot it and just pay for the consequences later? But yeah, go ahead. I mean, I'm, I like where you're going. Like, with. Outside, do you really- <laughs> outside of distribution in the festival space, I'm really excited in the next couple of years to see a movie that stars like Ryan Gosling and Mar- Marlon Brando playing brothers. Like someone is going to do something really interesting yeah. with that, with body doubles and faces. That's going to be fascinating. It will only play in festivals, but it'll be cool. But for theatrical, you know, it's going to be way cheaper to license four hours of Nicolas Cage to get Nicolas Cage on Zoom for those four hours reading his lines and then shoot his scenes with a body double, that'll cost you nothing compared to actually trying to get Nicolas Cage to set for a day. And yet you still get to say Nicolas Cage is in your movie, right? Think about it this way. Like that, you could even give him like a scale day rate. Like, and it's still less than flying him out and having him on set and certainly more appealing to him. But what I was going to add, deepfake is insane. We don't think about or talk about how big this could be enough it's literal. It's the genetic engineering. It's the cloning of filmmaking, as far as I'm concerned. Like it opens up so many moral and ethical questions and changes the future and the, and brings the past back. Like it, it blows my mind. And yet, it's just kind of happening. Like the other day, I shared with some friends something I just happened across on Instagram where someone put. Willem Dafoe on all the Spice Girls. Oh yeah, and just like, and I was just like, this is so weird and hilarious and like perfect. Like, why are we talking about deepfake more? But like, the, the, the Willem Dafoe and the Spice Girls aside, like, um, just think of like, what you can do. <laughs> yeah, like that, and that's only the beginning. But like, everybody's wanted that their whole lives, right? But but like, think about uh, Cameo. Are you guys familiar with the service Cameo? Like yeah. you, can, you can like hire a, a celebrity of of a sort of various back of various levels from various sources to record a message, and they're those are floating around, and and you don't pay them that much, and they do it from home, and it's easy for them, and it's kind of fun for them, and and they all they have to do is like zoom a message. Um, what if you just cameo to cameo? Like why not? You know why? What's like the next stage of this is so crazy to, to even setting aside what you guys remember uh, when they started doing that. Like they did the Fred Astaire vacuum commercial. I think John Wayne was in a beer commercial. I've referenced these things a few times. They look super clunky now, but you can pay the estate of a famous person to have their likeness and use it in an ad or in a movie. And like, seriously, what, 
Like if you get those imitations, we've seen the ones where like Jim Carrey, who's great at doing imitations, would do like uh, five different movie stars on a on a late night talk show, and someone would deep fake each star's face over him as he did it, and it's like seamless because if you have someone who can impersonate them and you have the face, boom, you're done. Like and and I I just like I think I don't think we can talk enough about. <laughs> Maybe I've talked enough already about it, but I, what do you got? Like, isn't this crazy? <laughs> what is the line from Jurassic, from Jurassic Park where yes. you spend time thinking so much about You're what so you- so worried about whether or not you- You could. You didn't stop to think if you should. That's how I feel about deep things, yeah. <laughs> is that we can do it. Is it right? I guess if you have approval, it's one thing to have approval from the estate and do it. It's another to know that we can just do it. So some people are going to just do it and already Correct. Like, there's no way Willem Dafoe said, yes, I would love to be on all the Spice Girls. Maybe or Steve he did. Buscemi said, yeah, maybe he did. Maybe he does. Or like Steve Buscemi on Jennifer Lawrence was like a famously creepy one um, early on. But like, yeah, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. People aren't going to wait and listen. Certainly not for meme purposes, right? I also have to confess that I 100% didn't realize that Hulu did this as deep fakes until preparing for today's podcast. I didn't stare at it long enough to know until, and then when we said, what should we talk about? Oh my gosh. So I am falling into that camp of people that didn't pay enough attention to it and would have just guessed they filmed, you know, with Aaron Judge or Lillard or whoever they were filming with. So that's, if that, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. It's creepy. I mean, I think it's creepy, but I also think it's something that, like, filmmakers should engage with. Like, I think totally. about, like, Absolutely. you know, I'm not going to learn, I'm not going to learn Dean Fix myself. But I think if you're 22 right now and thinking about a career in the film industry, you should get good at this. Because yes. there will be so many job opportunities. There will be so many creative outlets. There will be so many things you can do. I mean, for me, it was color grading. I remember so clearly Apple Color coming out, and I was like, oh. Oh, the people who know, the people who are good at this, opportunities are going to open for them. And that opened doors for me and built connections for me that still pay off in my life 15 years later. And I think of, I see the same thing in deep fakes now where I'm like, I can't tell you exactly where this is going to take you, but dig into it and it will take you interesting places. It's the best advice. And it's so like, get a deep fake machine, like build one at home and start doing it and start like practicing it. If you if you are so inclined, because like Tom Cruise likes to do all his own stunts, but a lot of people don't. And so there's going to be a lot of opportunities to put a face over another body um, in ways that aren't as weird and as like, you know, random and, and crazy as like, you know, I th- I, I, Dr. Fakenstein. Is that one of the accounts on Instagram that does some of the really impressive and silly ones? But like, there's going to be applications across the board and we probably don't even know yet because we can't think of what they're going to be, but it's going to be huge. It's going to be a huge thing that changes uh, the way we capture performances and present them and the budgets we have and what we can do for the budgets we have all that. Elements Bulk is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin locking functionality. Every element system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. On to tech news with what is legitimately, there's been a lot of camera announcements this year. There have been a ton of camera announcements this year, but I think this is the real 
I think this is right up there. With, I'm going to say this is a bigger announcement than the Sony a7S III. It's almost as big as the Blackmagic 12K. And that is the brand new Canon C70. What is the C70, you might ask? Well, I'm going to say that the C70 is what we all thought Canon was going to do with the cinema line in the first place. And that is basically what happened, for those of you who don't remember, the short story is Canon made this camera, the 5D Mark II, which was a full-frame camera, but it was DSLR, had a mirror in it, but it was a full-frame camera, and they included video as an afterthought. And as far as everyone can tell, what Canon thought people were going to do with the video was they thought journalists would record little video snippets of people, like, saying their name, and I give permission to use my photo. Like, they didn't think journalists were going to use it for video clips for their newspaper. They literally just thought it was going to be like this strange additional video tool, but they did not really appreciate how beautiful the imagery it created was. So the camera overheated a lot and it didn't have real audio connectors and, you know, all of it was terrible to work with, but the images were so pleasing. It launched a bunch of film careers. It launched the blog, no film school that you might've heard of that whose podcasts were on. <laughs> Nine years, uh, 11 years later, it launched Wait, what's that? so much. <laughs> um, and a couple years later, everyone was like, Canon, will you just make this camera, but in video format? And they were like, no, but we have these video cameras already. And they had video cameras, but they had these tiny sensors, like these third of an inch chip sensors, which gave this massive depth of field. They didn't look very good, but Canon was like, we have these video cameras. And everyone was like, no, 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 no. I don't want that video camera. I want this stills camera, but with video stuff like XLR ports and, and it not overheat so much. So can you give me this stills camera in a video format? And for a couple of years, they kept saying no, because they were like, we have these video cameras. Uh, it's like that meme when it's like, mom, can we have McDonald's? And mom is like, we got food at home. And then a picture of food at home. And it's like, you know, a slice of bread. It was like that. Canon kept being like, we have video cameras at home. And they were not as exciting as the 5D. <laughs> Canon finally came out with the cinema line, the C100, the C300, the C500. And they were, you know, the same sensors as the Canon 7D. So super 35 millimeter sensors. They weren't even as big as the 5D sensor. And, but they, they looked like the images we were getting out of the 5D and the 7D. They looked nice, but they didn't overheat. They had full size XLR and SDI connectors. They were video cameras built for rugged video use with the sensors we wanted. I personally thought they were a little too expensive when they came out, um, but they were huge hits, very popular. Blue is the warmest color. We shot on the C300. C300 Mark II like, owns the corporate video space. Everybody I know who works in that space, that camera's just everywhere. It's like even bigger than the FS7. C500 was sort of a miss because people couldn't really justify why it cost so much. They eventually came up with the C700, which was a little more popular. The C100 is on film school sets all over the world. But the body was a lot bigger. And the body was bigger enough that it still didn't give us that joy we got out of shooting with, like, by now at this point, you know, the Sony came out with the A7S II and Fuji came out with the XH1. And, like, these truly little cameras let us move cameras in different ways. We just got used to, like, holding it differently, running around with it differently, putting it different places, rigging it different places. We got used to that, but Canon didn't really offer anything. They offered something like the R5, which is a stills camera with cool video features, but it's still going to overheat a lot because it's a stills camera, not designed for video. It still doesn't have the audio interfaces we need. It still doesn't have the video interfaces we need. And then they had the cinema line, like the C200 was very popular, but they were too big. The C70 is a cinema line camera but it's closer in size to a stills camera than a video camera. Uh, it's not quite as small as a stills camera, but it's really close. Um, but it's big enough that it's not supposed to overheat. It's designed for video. It's a video first camera. It's 4K, uh, 120 frames per second. It supports dual gain at the sensor, which means it can capture. It's not like dual native ISO, like the Panasonic. It's a different thing that uses two sensor reads out and combines them together to create high dynamic range images. It has mini XLR connectors, has a full-size SDI connector. It's got the whole kit and caboodle of all the things you want, and it's $5,400. It is dynamite. It is, if you are a Canon shooter, uh, it is a whole lot of things that I think are gonna make you very excited in a very small package. Um, it's native RF mount, so it's gonna work with all of Canon's RF 
lenses, and it's going to have all of the cool autofocus features that Canon's been working so hard on lately. And, you know, you can still use a PL adapter to use a PL glass or an EF adapter to use EF glass. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, it's funny because I initially thought of this camera as being a reaction to like the Red Epic. The Red Epic is like a $40,000 camera body. What this is really a reaction to is the Blackmagic Pocket. I think the Blackmagic Pocket really proved to Canon that there's a huge market of people who want video features in a still body size. Because the Blackmagic Pocket just sells like hotcakes. And so I think the C70 is Canon saying, all right, you want something you can put on a Ronin S, you want something you can run around with all day, but you want something that shoots great video. Um, And I think they might have done it with the C70 on paper. The footage, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of footage in the coming weeks. Knowing Canon, I think a lot of that footage is going to look pretty good. Um, and on paper, the specs list is is a pretty good combination. I personally was hoping they were going to hit 4950. Uh, when I first read the specs, I was like, I hope it's under five. 5400 seems reasonable at launch. I hope by spring it's like 495 on, on B&H or Adorama. I, I hope by the spring it's 495 on places like Adorama. It's a big deal, right? <laughs> it, is, it is the biggest of the... I think it's more important than the A7S III, to be honest. Yeah, it feels like it. What like a summer of camera surprises cascading one after another. Well, it's not summer anymore, is it? It's fall now. I also don't know if it's super... Like the surprising piece, it's maybe surprising that they finally... That they did what people wanted them to do. I don't know if I was... Like, that is surprising, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, Sony's like, here's your other camera you were asking about. <laughs> that's true. Also, I really appreciate the history lesson because I was remembering, as you spoke, using the 5D Mark II and, and running into those errors. And and that is what started everyone, for everyone, starting to use the DSLR bodies as video, even though they weren't built to do so. And here we are, everyone buying, like you said, pocket pocket cameras that look like and feel like those cameras that shoot video. And that's where we're at. I'm really excited about, I'm excited to see this in action. I'm curious, um, what are the questions or potential downfalls of this camera? Will it shoot raw internal? Like what, if you're going to go out in the world, you're looking at cameras, like what the, what questions are you asking? So interestingly, one of the posts we have up on the site about this camera is a whole comparison of the landscape, looking at you're willing to nice. spend around this price point. Good plug. To EVA, to, yeah, to the EVA1, the Sony FX6, um, and I, I had to choose uh, in the Red Komodo because it's sort of in a comparison price point to the Red Komodo. Um, and then I had to choose a Black Magic, and instead of comparing it to the Pocket 6K, I compared it to the 12K. I mean, the 12K is almost twice the price, but I went and pocket 12K. I went and compared it to the 12K regardless. I mean, you know, the comparison really falls down to, you know, Sony with the FX6 uh, and Canon with the C70 don't have internal RAW, but are going to integrate more effectively with fast turnaround corporate workflows and are going to have better autofocus because Canon and Sony have put a tremendous amount of work into autofocus and both of their autofocus setups are getting like just intimidatingly good. The red Komodo and the black magic are going to give you more flexibility in post for color grading. Um, and especially the red Komodo is going to give you, I mean, reds work very hard to make that a camera that they claim is going to intercut seamlessly with all the other modern reds. And so you're going to get like image quality that you're used to seeing in music videos that you're used to seeing on new features. Both of those cameras are going to give you internal raw. In fact, the black magic doesn't shoot anything but raw because it has that weird sensor. So it only shoots raw. You can't even shoot to another format with that camera right now. You have to transcode and post, but because of the nature of the beast, they're not going to have a sophisticated autofocus and autofocus is not a thing we cared about four or five years ago. But you know, if you're an action shooter, even if you're an action shooter doing cool commercial stuff, if you're doing like an action sports commercial, autofocus is becoming a bigger deal than it used to be. And it's becoming something that people are starting to rely on more and more. Or even if you're just a doc shooter and you're shooting solo a doc interview and you've got a subject who likes to lean back and forth, flipping on really good autofocus and having them keep that person sharp and you don't have to worry about it is a great thing. And I think that, you know, the Sony and the Canon are going to lean a little bit towards 
the corporate world, but you're going to see a lot of commercials music videos shot on them because they're both great looking cameras. And they're going to give you that sort of big company autofocus integration workflow thing. The red and the black magic, because they don't make their own glass. They're not going to have as sophisticated autofocus systems. But if you're always going out with the first AC anyway, those cameras are probably going to be more your speed uh, for the I'm working with a with a multi-person crew kind of thing. The 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 lack of internal RAW in the C70 could be a deal breaker for some, especially because we said clearly this is a competitor for the Canon. I mean, clearly this is a competitor for Blackmagic Pocket, and the beauty of the Pocket is the internal RAW. Um, but you know, it will hook up to external recorders. I think they had to make sacrifices somewhere, and I think it was a smart move for them to say we're going to focus on uh, high dynamic range and high frame rates, and we're going to let internal raw go. I think that was probably a smart move. I think this is exciting, obviously, um, but I think we really want to stay like attached to what people's impressions are, like hands-on. We'll want to get some footage and talk about how it looks and how it compares to other things, but the possibilities here do feel really big, um, especially for like filmmakers in our community. It feels like it's really a big moment um, there's a lot of options for them and these companies are competing for your camera dollars and your footage, basically. <laughs> they are they are looking at all of you. So I feel like that's kind of cool. All right. And then for our last story this week, I mean, we don't talk politics much on this podcast. I mean, we did a, a bit in May and June and we have a bit since. And I think everybody sort of knows I think everybody has guesses about all of the co-hosts and where they land on the political spectrum. Um, let's set know, let's set aside what first. Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to open. <laughs> I want to open it by saying I want to ask you guys something that I'm curious about. Um, sometimes I I feel like I'm a recovering. I'm a filmmaker in recovery um, at No Film School, but I'm curious. Like I want to know what people feel as far as being educators, which you both are, filmmakers, which you both are. A lot has happened in the past eight months and in the past year and in the past four years. Um, in the last four days, three days, uh, again, it just feels like the rug is being pulled out from under us in so many ways. There's always this argument, I think, that politics should stay out of X, right? It should stay out of sports. It should stay out of um, television or movies. It should stay out of the Academy Awards or whatever. But it really feels like it's hard nowadays to me to separate. And I want to use this last segment because, you know, we talk about headlines, but it seems impossible to ignore the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what's going on in the wake of that uh to just talk about what is how does this impact you as a filmmaker and how do you want it to impact the people who are coming into this profession this craft of like creating content whether it's a movie or whatever it is like we talked about it when there were protests happening around the country and the world and I think it's a, an appropriate time to talk about it again. Like major things are happening. Lifetime appointments are being pushed through or so we expect um, to major courts, the highest courts in the land. I, I just want to know, like, what do you guys think about how a filmmaker should approach their craft and should it inform what they do? Should, should it... Um, should it be the focus of their work? I will say that I feel like several years ago, you could potentially take a gig, we'll use editing for an example, and do it and feel like it was separate from your personal views. Like if it was a, I'll just, a gig for a political party or for a campaign and you were just doing a job. Right, and that you would go on your resume, and it didn't really say anything. This is potentially didn't say anything about that person. Like it's just a job. And now, I find that folks are critically examining what they're doing, what they're putting their name on in terms of the world, 
So I feel like part of the answer to the question is, I think people are, are much more um, curious about the work that they take and it feels like it's just not a, not just a job, that it's a job and it has consequences and that there's uh, potentially that your name is linked to it and that you are standing up for things that feel wrong or right and suddenly it becomes more than a job. And I think that I've heard that from a couple of folks in the realm of both the reality and reality editing and editing for campaigns and such that they just don't feel like like my morals are saying that I can't do this. And I'm hearing and hearing that more and more. And so I think the more that we kind of are in tune with our moral compass, that's going to be the case. So that's part one. And I think people are, are looking at their gigs as not just gigs anymore. And so it is entrenched in the world that we are in. And I think it's interesting how we define the word political, like someone coming on the Emmys and saying, you should vote. Like that's not inherently a political statement. That's a request. And so the, I, maybe it depends. Maybe it depends on how we define the word political as well. So I, I have many thoughts on this. My first thought on this is everything is political. To think that anything you do isn't involved in politics is a luxury that some of us in the mid-90s, when the Soviet Union had just fallen and the economy was going well, had the delusion of thinking, oh, I can do things that are divorced from history and politics. That is a total fantasy. Everything we are doing is participating in making decisions about who's represented and who's not represented, um, whose stories we're telling, whether or not we're doing that for profit, all of it. Everything we do is tied up in it, which is also a relief because it means, well, nobody must have done it perfectly in the history of mankind. So we just have to do the best we can with the information we have. But like, even when we talk about the best films of all time, like the Godfather is a movie about politics. It's a movie about immigration. It's a movie about how immigrants try and find their place in a country. That's not always welcome for them. Right. There were no legitimate avenues for the Corleone family. And so in order to make it in America, they had to pursue illegal means. So it's about what's illegal and not illegal, which is, what politics is always defining, who are the immigrants that are wanted, who aren't they wanted, that's a political movie. The Citizen Kane, he runs for governor, he tries to change things politically, he realizes it's futile. Like all of these movies we talk about loving. Casablanca is pretty political. That's another one. Yeah. Like <laughs> I would even say Back to the Future is political. Back to the Future is about, you know, like there are political implications in reckoning with that movie and the way in yep. which the 1950s are being presented to the world of the 1980s to create this nostalgic concept of selling a concept to people. And, you know, I remember when I started a production company, I sat around with my business partner and we had this big conversation about like, what clients would we take and what clients wouldn't we take? And somebody else was like Northrop Grumman. And we were all like, well, no, Northrop Grumman, like, obviously we're not going to put our names on bombs or Raytheon. And what's funny is we had this big, long conversation about who we would take and who we wouldn't take. And it never came up. And then like a couple weeks later, we got a porn client and, you know, it had never crossed our minds to have a conversation about whether or not we would work on post-production for, it was the largest budget um, adult entertainment ever made. So it was like a high dollar adult entertainment and they wanted to hire a real post house to do work. It felt like boogie nights. Like there were many times where the director was like, we're making a real movie here, man. Um, <laughs> but you know, all of a sudden, and that's a political conversation. Like how do we feel about sex work or are we going to judge it? Are we going to, are we going to say that this is also legitimate work? Like all of these are political decisions. Everything is a political decision and it's a luxury to think that there's a way to escape it. But on the flip side of that, I also think there's this thing, and this is going to sound like I'm attacking you, Michelle, and I don't mean it to, because I don't think, I, I think what I'm saying isn't an attack on you and I hope it's not. And we'll see how, if I can make it there at the end, there's this bullshit climate thing that keeps showing up in all these newspaper articles that are like 10 things you can do to solve the climate. You should stop taking plastic bags. What if you replaced one of your things with a car trip a day? And it's like, in truth, 70% of emissions that are causing climate change are from a hundred companies, right? So, but there's this great big political corporate thing that like individual choices can make these big changes and you should bring your own grocery bag. And that's what it's your fault. Global warming, take individual action. And I think there's this real judgment of individuals if we're not able to be perfect, if we're not. And, you know, we're talking, I ride my bike to the grocery store every day. I bring my own bags. I even just ordered reusable produce bags so I can stop using the plastic. So I'm doing everything I can 
but still ExxonMobil is like proper regulation of our oil companies are what are going to solve global warming, not everybody deciding to ride their bike to the grocery. And so there's a little bit where I think that's bled over where people are feeling a lot of pressure to like really morally evaluate their job decisions, which on one hand I think is wonderful, but on another hand, like I work to feed my kid. I have a mortgage. Like I have, you know, we have like bills and like, I don't want people feeling like, I feel like there's this undue pressure to like morally evaluate every single job you ever do. And like, sometimes we all just need to make sure rent is paid. Uh, and moral, some moral scrupulosity, right? Well, it's just, it's complicated. It's like one yeah. of those things of like, you know, it's, so I think that like, it's good that we're evaluating the moral decisions we make as filmmakers. And there are certain clients I will never take. I actually feel no shame about the fact that I worked for the biggest budget adult entertainment of all time. It was a great anecdote. I learned some interesting things about the industry. It was a very banal job. Like in their offices, they had a bunch of like memes on the wall of like, you know, the owner of the company in a Time Magazine ad. It, it wasn't Trump. It was a different guy. But um, it was like, and it was a joke. <laughs> But like it was a very normal thing. But like there are other clients I've taken where I'm like, it, we should make choices, but we should also accept that like the reality of the world. Like, would I work for Raytheon? Probably not. You know, I'm not a big it's fan very, of very. It's no, very no. hard. Yeah, I think you're what you're saying, and I agree with. It's really hard to exist in the system right now that we exist in, and not have some blood on your hands. Um, well, and the right wing does this crazy thing where they're like, ha ha ha, you want to change the system, but you're on an iPhone. So you're part of the system. So fuck you. And it's like, well, no, we're all part of the system. We can want to improve the system while being part of it. Like none of us are perfect. None of us have succeeded in living pure lives. Yeah. So can we- I, and I feel all of that. And I, I think both of your answers are, are fascinating and, and satisfying to me on some level. I think I also wonder, you know, one of the places my mind goes is that stories do have the power to influence people's hearts and minds. Um, documentaries certainly do. Um, fiction certainly does. Um, commercials do. It all has that power. It's magic. Um, and propaganda is a thing and uh, subtle, in subtle ways and in obvious ways. And I wonder if you're getting into this now, if you, if, if I hope, I guess I should say, I hope that some people who are, who maybe wouldn't consider approaching it that way or approaching this field that way um, are, are considering it now because there are, you know, there's those celebrity PSAs that nobody likes where they all tell you to do something in like rapid succession, like go vote. And I think it sometimes just alienates people, but there are, <laughs> there are other ways to tell, to make meaning in the mind of an audience about a cause or about uh, what's right and wrong in your mind, not necessarily in an overarching, like as it applies to everybody in every situation, but like, you know, there's so many great stories that can be applied to, uh, you know, like, you know, um, To Kill a Mockingbird is a, is a classic example and it's overt, but there are subtle ones like the Oxbow incident, if you don't know about that movie, or I think I talked about Bad Day at Blackrock once, or like, there's all kinds of ways that major stories can be, I mean, uh, Watchmen, the, the HBO series, which was a big winner at the Emmys, which just recently, um, there's lots of ways you can tell stories that have an impact that ask questions and that push ideas forward and don't always necessarily provide answers. Um, and I, and I think because like, I, I think we address people who are at various stages of their careers, but you know, maybe have things they want to put out there and say, I want to implore everybody, I guess, to, use their skills and use the medium they work in to try and share ideas and, and views and, and help create some change and awareness. And I think you guys are educators. So I guess I ask you, or I put it to you also, because you see where people are coming into this, you see the entry point and you know what they're, what they're thinking. And if you think that, that, that is part of, the landscape right now, the people getting involved in filmmaking or content creation 
of, of any kind are interested in, in it for that reason, or if they're more interested in it, like the, we've talked about before, 1930s Hollywood, when the world was very full of upheaval, the, the, uh, the national world, at least the national landscape, everybody wanted movies that were just about rich people and frivolous things because they wanted escapism. So there's, there's that too. Go vote. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, please just vote. If you think voting doesn't matter, you're wrong. But you could be right about who you're voting for. So please just go vote. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with more people voting. We all win. And that, I mean that. All right. Uh, it feels weird to plug your pluggables, but I'm going to do it anyway. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. And uh, you can find my work at charleshane.com, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. Check out my web series, saltypirate.tv. This is Michelle Delatour. It's a pleasure to be back with you both. I am working on a photography project. It's not up and loaded yet. It involves old lenses on modern cameras. A lot of people do this stuff. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be on Instagram, mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Right now, it's a lot of fly fishing photos and other <laughs> things that I'm playing with uh, out here. So thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to talking with you guys soon. Thank you. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thank you, Charles and Michelle, as always. It's great to have you both, and Michelle, have you back. Uh, you can find everything we spoke about and more at nofilmschool.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, rate us, like us, wherever you get your podcasts, leave a comment. And please weigh in on the things we talk about. Uh, this particularly, this last segment, I want to hear from other people. I don't just want to hear from Charles and Michelle and certainly myself on these topics. I want to know what the rest of the community thinks and feels, whether I agree with it or not. And I want to direct everybody's attention to our coverage of the Canon C70. Uh, there will be a lot of it on the website coming, and there's some already, but there's going to be more. And uh, we're excited about it, and we hope you are too. Um, we also have, uh, speaking of, of political things or things about politics, um, The Way I See It is a documentary about a White House photographer who has, of course, unique access to multiple presidents. Uh, I interviewed the director, Don Porter, um, all about that documentary and you can hear that on our podcast and find out more about that movie it's really cool unique perspective uh, pun intended um, also we're going to have an interview up with the writer and the director two different people of Palm Springs which we've talked about a lot on this podcast Woo! and we wrote about a lot on the website and we get some answers to some of the things we've been wondering about about that movie and its release and everything um, so thank you all so much for listening 